I've been thinking about this series for a while, but I haven't been able to do anything to it until last week. And I guess the reason for that is because it wasn't supposed to be. I guess. That's right. But I struggled with it all, all, all spring. Mm-hmm. Before we realized that we wouldn't be able to come out right, and but anyway, and it just wouldn't gel, it wouldn't fit. So I didn't know if the Lord wanted us to do this or not, but I just had this morning we'll start, Lord willing, a five-part series in the Psalms. Amen. And the Psalms have a, a wonderful capacity to capture the reality of our human experiences by meeting the need of the heart when it is discouraged and defeated or when it is elated and encouraged. Every human emotion is expressed in beautiful and inspired terms. Joy, anger, praise, trust, repentance, yes, and even doubt. No matter how deep the pain, or how great the frustration, or how exhilarating the joy, we can find songs which echo our inmost being. Mm -hmm. And in the end, They guide us to the praise of our loving Creator. The whole book is a collection that has been put together by the ancient Hebrews in order that we might understand what the people of God have gone through and how they found their way out. In order to appreciate the Psalms, there are a certain number of characteristics that should be kept in mind. And first, the psalms function as a kind of school, as a teacher of the heart for the affections. They are God's word to us, and they are God's word for us, to teach us how to pray. And second, the psalms were written for singing. They are not merely poems, but lyrics for music from the ancient world. They teach us how to sing, how to sing our longings and even our disappointments, excuse me, our anxieties, our fears. But ultimately, they teach us how to sing praises to the Lord who knows our way. Amen. And third, the Psalms are also useful for teaching and confirming that Jesus is the Christ the Messiah. The birth, crucifixion, resurrection, and the second coming of Christ are all spoken of in the Psalms. And so the Psalms, the book of Psalms, is a prophecy book as well. And fourth, it must be remembered that each of the Psalms were written in powerful poetic language of an individual's response to God in the middle of excuse me, of a particular situation. The Greek word for psalm is psalmus, from the Hebrew word zemer, meaning to pluck, and that is taking hold of the strings of an instrument with the fingers. It implies that the psalms were originally composed to be accompanied by a stringed instrument. David and others, therefore, originally wrote the psalms to be sung 
to the accompaniment of the harp. In New Testament worship, we are told to sing songs to the accompaniment of the heart. Ephesians 5 verse 19 tells us in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And the phrase making melody comes from the Greek word solantis, literally plucking the strings of. And therefore, we are to pluck the strings of our heart as we sing the songs. That is, we are to sing with emotion. The poems in the Psalms were written over a period of a thousand years, from the time of Moses in the 15th century BC to the time of Ezra in the 5th century BC. Now Ezra was a Jewish priest and scribe who was one of the leaders of Israel when they returned from exile in Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem and Solomon's temple. David wrote 73 of the Psalms. Moses wrote Psalm chapter 90, and it is a song of meditation, reflection, and prayer. The sons of Korah, who were Levites who served in the temple, continued to write psalms for centuries. And 11 in the book of Psalms are theirs, are attributed to them. Others include contemporaries of David, his choir leaders, whom he placed in charge of worship in Jerusalem. The names Ethan, Heman, Asaph, and others appearing in the Psalms are royal choir masters. Ethan composed Psalm 89, Heman 88, and Asaph Psalm 50 and 73 through 83. <clears throat> Solomon followed his father David's footsteps by writing Psalms as well as Proverbs. And Psalm 72 and 127 are accredited to him. Now the authorship of 48 of the Psalms is unknown. It makes a total of 150. And it was in Ezra's time that the book of Psalms as we know it was compiled. And that was the 5th century B.C. <coughs> Now, if you have your Bibles and you look at the top of Psalm 1, most translations say Book 1. You notice that? Mm -hmm. So like the Pentateuch, excuse me, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Psalms divide into five books as well. And the first book of Psalms ends with chapter 41. And this group of Psalms relates to the book of Genesis. And book two is Psalms 42 through 72. And this group relates to the book of Exodus. And book three, Psalms 73 through 89, this group of Psalms relates to the book of Leviticus. And book four, Psalms 90 through 106 go along with the book of Numbers. And book five, 107 through 150 is quite similar to the book of Deuteronomy. So if your Bibles tell you that it is book 1, you go to chapter 42 and then it'll say book 2 and so on. So in this series, we are going to consider the introductory psalm to each of the five books. In Psalm 1, which we'll be looking at this morning, 
serves as an introduction to the entire book of Psalms, but especially the first book, chapters 1 through 41, the book that relates to Genesis. <clears throat> it is an introduction to human life and a revelation of the needs of the human heart. It affirms that there is one way to true life, and to ignore this way, as Proverbs 1, verses 20 to 33 says, is to foolishly accept death. Now Psalm 1 <clears throat> makes a promise about the Psalms. Those who drink deeply from the Psalms will find a sustainable source of spiritual drink, a source that sustains one on the road of life and a source that will never run dry. And Psalm 1 sets the theme for this first book. That is, the person blessed by God is the one who is obedient to his word while the sinner rejects it and receives God's judgment. And the closing thought of this group, chapter 41's doxology, identifies the Lord as the source of our blessing. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Now from everlasting to everlasting is the strongest way of expressing enduring endless duration. And the glory of God goes on and on without pause. And the double amen is to confirm the words and invoke the fulfillment of them. Meaning, so let it surely firmly and eternally be. And that's the introduction to the book of Psalms. So this morning we will begin with Psalm chapter 1, and I'm going to read that this morning from the New King James Version. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. And therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. This is the word of the Lord. And before we begin our study this morning, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes by the Holy Spirit so that, you, that we would be able to understand the wonderful things of your law. And that you would apply that truth to our hearts in very specific ways. Help us, O oh God. Help us. Give us ears and hearts that listen and learn what it is that you have to say to us this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> when we think of people we tend to think that there are as many kinds of people in the world as there are individuals. But in the Bible, 
God says that all the individual people fall into one of two categories. There are those who belong to God, and there are those who don't belong to God. That is, there are believers and unbelievers. There are Christians and non-Christians. There are righteous people, and there are ungodly people. Two. Two. And we will find in this first study the blessings for those who make the Lord their God and the punishments for those who do not. Now Psalm 1 talks about a person's walk with the Lord. It contrasts the walk of the righteous with the walk or way or path of the unrighteous or ungodly. So what do we mean by righteous and ungodly? In the Bible, a righteous person is a person who is righteous in virtue of his or her relationship with the Lord God. Now, righteousness is not something that we possess. In biblical terms, it's a relationship word. And from our Christian perspective, righteousness means that all of the sin and every shortcoming that are found in our lives have been covered by the Son of God. The Lord God accepts Christ's life in the place of ours, so that in virtue of Christ's obedience, we are righteous before the Lord. Because Jesus lives through the work of his Holy Spirit, we can live with, filled with the power of God. Now that is being righteous in biblical terms. Now being ungodly is the exact opposite of being righteous. It is a lack of regard for the Lord and his principles. It is someone saying there is no concern of mine into which the Lord fits or in which he has a part. And there is no concern of the Lord that touches my life. That's what it means ungodly. Now some translations use the word wicked instead of ungodly. Now when we think of being wicked, we often think of some notorious person as being wicked. But the psalmist doesn't mean that. The term means the ungodly. Someone who has ruled God out of his or her life. And to eliminate God from your thinking is to be wicked. To be ungodly. And verse 6 presents a key to understanding Psalm 1. It describes the God-centered life and the self-centered life. Verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So let's look at what is said about the God-centered life in verses 1 and 2. Blessed or blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now the Hebrew word for man in this context means person, without reference to gender. So you ladies are included in this as well. So whenever I say he, for the sake of continuity or whatever you call it, means you folks too. I'll try to use the word person as much as I can. 
<laughs> but there's no gender involved. The imagery here presents an ideal, righteous person, one who is in the world, but quite unaffected by the world. And these verses begin with the word blessed or blessed. Now some translations use the word happy. Both translations are legitimate. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount the same way. It begins with what we call the Beatitudes, which means the blessings. And these Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verses 3 to 11, are the secrets of blessingness or happiness in one's life. For example, in verse 3 of Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here in Psalm 1, the psalmist is giving us the secret of the blessedness, the happiness, the inward joy of the person who lives like this. Are you joyful this morning? Amen. In spite of things? Amen. In spite of COVID? <laughs> in verses 1 and 2, the delight of the blessed person is portrayed here. First, negatively, in terms of what he does not do. And then positively, in terms of what he does. And there are three points of how the blessed person is contrasted with the unrighteous. First, the unrighteous walks in the counsel of the ungodly. And second, the unrighteous stands in the path or way of sinners. And third, the unrighteous sits in the seat of the scornful, the scoffers. Now we have an image here of an unrighteous person walking into a territory inhabited by the ungodly. An area ruled by ideas, principles, and practices that are not of the Lord. And this person is deliberately exposing himself to these influences. And having arrived there, he comes to a standstill and begins to look about himself, gazing at the enticements, the allurements, the influences of ungodliness everywhere. And he actually now is knowingly associating with the people he shouldn't be with. And then what does he do? He sits down right where he is. He establishes residence among them. He's become a fixture in the presence of the unrighteous scoffing at those who spend their time trusting in the Word of God. And notice the progression of behavior here. At first this person is walking, then standing, and then last is sitting. And we need to see in this that a believer in Christ, fellowshipping with those of unbelief, is dangerous. And the trick is to keep moving so that we don't absorb their standards, or give the appearance of approving of their lifestyle. Light and darkness cannot prevail in the same place. Now we've looked at the negative side, now let's look at the positive side. What the righteous person does. In verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now when we speak 
about the law of the Lord, we mean in a particular sense, the books of Moses. But in a wider sense, however, all of Scripture, all of the Word of God, is the law of the Lord. And the righteous person finds his delight in the law of the Lord. And one of the reasons Scripture is a delight is because it is truth. It is accurate. It is reliable and actively positive and powerful. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Now, day and night is an idiom which means constantly, consistently, regularly. And biblical meditation is focusing the mind on Scripture. And this person has God's Word on his mind and in his heart at all times and in every situation and area of his life. He does not attempt to find some kind of encouragement from outsiders for peace and rest. He learns to draw upon the strength of God. And this is the secret of godly life. A person who delights in the word of God and meditates on the word of God is a person who is blessed, joyful, fulfilled. And you know, isn't it interesting when we read this, what a difference the definition of Scripture has when it comes to blessing versus how we tend to understand blessing. This state of blessing that the psalmist is describing here does not always come in the midst of comfort. Sometimes it comes in the middle of hardship or heartache. And one of the beautiful things that Psalm 1 teaches us is that blessing is not merely a state of comfort. Now, Scripture is honest about pain, hardship, and sometimes unspeakable tragedy in the life of a believer. But our source of joy is not from those circumstances. For the believer, there is often this strange mixture that in the midst of hardship and heartache, there is happiness and satisfaction in God. As believers, our joy is not dependent on our circumstances, but on our God and our Savior, who is steadfast and unable to be attacked or questioned. In verse 3, we read of what it is like to be that blessed person who delights in the word of God. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Now in this verse, the verb planted actually means to transplant. Now, to transplant means taking something or someone out of one environment and placing it into another. Like taking a tree growing, growing in barren conditions and transplanting it by streams of water so that it is well watered with its roots sunk deep into the fertile soil. The righteous person, the one who depends on God, is like a tree 
that has been transplanted beside the irrigation streams of the Word of God. He can flourish even when the going gets tough. Because, like this tree which drinks from the streams of water, the righteous drink daily from God's Word, drawing a constant supply of water and nourishment and life from that Word. He is resilient and God watches over the path that he or she walks. Water in scripture many times means the word of God. And we see an example of that in Ephesians 5, verse 26, that Christ might sanctify and cleanse the church with the washing of water by the word. And this psalmist is saying here that the godly person has learned in the hidden inner parts of his or her life to put down roots in scripture and draw from the word of God the grace and glory and strength of God for his or her life. And the nourishment will make this Christian strong in the spirit. And in so doing, like the tree in its season, that at the proper suitable time will become a fruit producer. And being fruitful, the psalmist says, is the will of God for his children and for his children to delight in his word so that they'll bring forth fruit in their season. Matthew 13, verse 23 says, But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Now there's an application for us here that we need to note. The tree can do without some of its branches, but it cannot live at all without its roots. The roots are essential. Take those roots away and the plant must wither. And so there are things essential in a Christian. Do we all have the branches and the fruits. These will come in their season, and they must come if we are Christ's disciples. But nobody expects to see fruit on a tree a week after it has been planted. There are some trees that do not bear any fruit or any great fruit for several years. And then at last, when the favorable season comes, they are at first white with blossoms, and then they yield their fruit. The tree, oh, is it done? <laughs> oh, oh. <coughs> okay, shoo. <coughs> the tree is not just for itself. It exists to provide fruit for others. It can actually be a place of shade for others. It can actually be a place of refuge and rest for others. This is what makes a tree a blessing. Now, same thing for Christians. When their season comes, they will also bear fruit, spiritual fruit. And the psalmist's point is that we do not simply take in God's word for ourselves. We take in God's word so that our lives are a blessing to others. 
And that's the effect that the word of God has on the soul of a believer. And that's what the psalmist is reflecting and remarking upon here. So how do you know when your spiritual roots run deep? It's simple. There's fruit. If we do not have spiritual roots, we will not bear spiritual fruit. Now there's something to pray about. That we might be spiritually fruitful and nourishing in love with the things of God, loving holiness, showing grace, loving God's law, and meditating on it day and night, as it says in verse 2. Whose leaf also shall not wither. I'm not getting emotional, right? Wherever you find yourself today, if you <clears throat> have come up against something in your life that is big, that is scary, and you're afraid, if death and disease and darkness is closing in on you, if you feel like you are all alone, if you don't know how much longer you can hang on, and the wind is blowing and beating, and the hard rain is coming down upon you, this psalm is talking about your life, your real life. And verse 3 is a promise. It's good news for you that in a world like ours where there is a great deal of sadness and there's a lot that is hard, the living waters of Jesus Christ and the power of his word is what will sustain you so that your leaf does not wither. Amen. Amen. And there, at the end of verse 3, the psalmist goes on, and in whatever he does, he prospers. That is, he prospers spiritually, eternally. Those who are deeply planted in God's word may not be wealthy, but they will be fruitful in God's work, which is true prosperity. In 3 John 1, verse 2, John says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. The closest walk that most of us have with God is in the real trials of life. When we realize we are not able to handle a problem on our own and we reach out to God, that is true prosperity. And the main thing is, we must judge prosperity, not by physical wealth or even physical health, but primarily by spiritual growth. But as good as verse 3 is for God's people, verses 4 and 5 are bad news for those who do not know the Lord. <clears throat> verse 4 says, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. It takes two verses 
to describe the secret of the godly life. It only takes two words to describe the life of the ungodly. Not so. The ungodly are not so. Not like the godly. But, and here is the evaluation of their life. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Now chaff is the life shell around the kernel of grain, which must be stripped away before the kernel of grain can be ground into flour, right? Chaff is light enough that it can be separated from the grain by, say, throwing a scoopful into the wind and letting the wind drive away the chaff. Clear back in David's day, the only thing they could think to do with chaff was to blow it away. And still 2,000 years after Christ, the only thing that we can do with chaff is to blow it away. And that is God's evaluation of a life which has no room for God. It is like chaff. And so it's a startling picture, isn't it? That is who we are apart from God and his word. In verse 5, says, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. To stand in the judgment of God is a symbol of divine approval. The congregation of the righteous refers to God's people whose faith is reflected by their delight in God's word, back in verse 2, and who live according to it. In the day of judgment, the ungodly will not be left standing with those who love God and strive to obey him. They will be separated and sentenced to eternal punishment. We stand or fall by the judgment of Jesus. The ungodly will fail at this judgment. Heaven is for believers in Christ. There will be no ungodly there. And then the psalm concludes with this tremendous word of explanation. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The Lord knows in this context, refers not to just God's awareness, but to an intimate, personal knowledge. God is intimately involved with the way of the righteous, but has no connection with the way of the ungodly, except in judgment. The way of refers to one's total course of life, their lifestyle and shall perish one day, the ungodly person's way will end in ruin. So in conclusion then, finally, Psalm 1 then teaches us some very important things. It reminds us that there is a judgment and accounting for our lives. It warns us of the consequence of sin it points out to us that there is a value in investing our lives in that which endures. 
And so this psalm is an encouragement to allow the Lord to shape our lives through his word and to commit ourselves afresh to him. Meditating on that word of God and how we'll allow it to mold and transform our lives, our relationships, and our thought patterns. God's word, his law, is worth investing your life in. It's worth investing my life in. And such a person is indeed blessed and happy. So humble yourself. Be deeply rooted in Christ and build up in him. Become even more established in your faith. Grow deep and live tall and beautiful. Be all that God created you to be and bear fruit in his name. Praise the Lord. Amen. So I'm going to leave you this morning with Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21. It's Paul's prayer to the Ephesians. And I can't put it any better than what he does here this morning. <clears throat> Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might, through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend it with all the saints what is the width and length and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen.